Well, because of because of the snow apocalypse, we are going to uh, actually divert from our diversion this morning. We were diverting away. I'm going to move these back because I'm about to get crazy up here. Um, we are going di- to we diverted from First Corinthians to move towards uh, uh, John chapter 17 to talk about oneness as we together have gathered together and, and, uh, and been uh, in the process of this merger, two churches becoming one. What does that look like? We've asked ourselves the question, what does that look like? And there was no better place for us to go than to John chapter 17 to see the oneness that Jesus prescribes uh, for his people and that he prays for his people, not only those who, who he was speaking about specifically in John chapter 17, but all of those who the Father would give to him. And so that's us. That includes us. If you're in Christ this morning, you're one uh, with Christ, and you are one together with your brothers and sisters on your left and your right. If you've believed the truth of the gospel, if you have seen Jesus and seen him as the most precious treasure that exists in this, in this world, and that you have trusted him totally to make you right with God the Father, if you've repented of your sins and turned from it, uh, you are one with the Father. And we explored the idea last week that God's oneness is the grounds or the basis for our own oneness. That the oneness of God, when, when, when Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and then he commands his, his, the people of God to love the Lord their God, when he says the Lord is one, what he's doing is giving us the foundational truth for our own unity, for our own oneness. And so this morning, as we go to God's Word, we were going to go back to John chapter 17, but I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning, and I want us to go to Colossians chapter 3. Now, I'm pivoting literally last second here. I have no notes this morning, so we'll see how this goes. I've never done this before. You may think I'm crazy. There's not going to be any slides. I'm sorry about that. Community groups will get you a discussion guide later in the week. But as I was meditating this week on this text, there were several things that jumped out to me, even as we considered our identity last week. In Christ, the identity that, that is prayed for us uh, by Jesus, we as God's people this morning can see clearly some things that we're set apart for in Colossians chapter 3. So I want you to go there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the back table or there's some in the pew in front of you. The ones in the pew in front of you are actually a different translation that I'm going to be reading. If that's going to throw you off, I would encourage you to walk back there and do that. You're not going to disrupt anything. It's totally fine. Also, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that one is for you back there back there as well. So I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to walk through this text. I'm going to read through verse 17, not the whole chapter, just through verse 17. And we're going to walk through this text and point out a handful of things that I think are really important for us as a congregation to consider as we move uh, to becoming one and unity in this idea. Blaze, I'm sorry. Was Blaze in here? He's right there hey, you're going to preach a different text than I told you you're going to preach in a couple weeks. So all that preparation, I'm, I'm sorry, brother. Maybe we can work it out still. We'll figure it out. You can roll with the punches. You're a flexible guy. Let me read this. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if another has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And also, above these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, so there's a handful of things here, and because I don't have a specific outline for you, I don't know how many, but there are a lot. So we're going we're gonna to take this again in chunks here and look pretty much verse by verse at, at this text. There's a handful of things that I do want to key on in this text and things that are incredibly important will be important for us as we continue to think about being two churches and com- coming together to be one church. The first thing that's of utmost importance is just in verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now this is conditional. It gives us uh, the next section of text is for those who have been raised with Christ. Now, what is the opposite? Look up the page. Go to verse 20 in in Colossians chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what Paul is saying here is if then you have uh, been raised with Christ, therefore the understanding must be first and foremost, it must be understood first and foremost that you have died. This is, a, this is part of our identity, as those who have been raised with Christ, of those who are dead in our transgressions and sins, as those who have, were alienated and hostile in mind, even as Paul says earlier in Colossians chapter 1, those who are alienated and hostile in mind now have been raised with Christ. So again, we have been joined together with Christ. Jesus praised that in John chapter 17, and now here we see an outworking of that. We are raised with Christ. New life is in us. And we now, as the people of God, have a handful of tasks set out before us. This is a conditional clause. This is not for every human being. This is for those who are in Christ, died to the elemental spirits of the world, and now been raised with Christ. Friends, this is why we believe that baptism is by immersion and for the people of God, people who have been converted uh, and who have seen and been, uh, been uh, enamored with, the, the, with Jesus Christ. 
That baptism comes as a result of that. Baptism pictures this this going down into the water, dying to the elemental spirits of the world, and then being raised up with Christ. That is is an internal reality that has happened in you if you are in Christ, and what it is now here is pictured in baptism. This text is not about baptism. I wanted to put that in there. Seek the things that are above. Now Paul starts to tell us the things that are happening or should be happening amongst the people of God. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so we see here immediately a a command, an imperative given to us. What is it that we should do? We should seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And immediately we're, we're confronted with a question for ourselves. What is it that I am seeking? What is it that I am seeking? And secondarily, or maybe primarily in this case, what is it that we together as the body of Christ are seeking? Are we seeking our own personal power? Are we seeking something outside of, outside of what's commanded or explicitly stated in Scripture? Or are we together as one body seeking the things that are above? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We, friends, not just individually, but corporately, need to ask ourselves that question. What are we seeking? What are we seeking? There are a lot of things that we could, we could seek. Notoriety in our community. We could, seek, uh, we could seek to be known and thought well of amongst the people. We could, we could seek to please people around us. Or, or, friends, we could seek to be what our mission is according to what Jesus has set us aside for. We could seek to be those who are disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission, and that's what we should seek because that is the command that Jesus has given to us and where he is, he's seated at the right hand of God. He has set us apart for his purposes and he has made us, made us a, a people and therefore we should seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul restates this in, in verse two. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are in the earth. Just making that that dichotomy. But then he says, for you have died. Again, this understanding of death, death coming to us and being raised for your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now this goes back to what we talked about last week. I think it's our fourth point last week that our life is secure in Christ, that we are secure in Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. It's hidden from anything that could snatch you out of the Father's hand here on earth. It is hidden in a mysterious place with Christ in in heaven. And then Paul writes, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we have been raised with Christ. Newness of life has become a reality for us. But then we as God's people uh, will one day participate in an actual resurrection from the dead, a physical resurrection of the dead, where we will spend eternity with Jesus in glory. 
So we see here then this identity fleshed out. Those who have new life in Christ, those who have been raised with Christ, and a command that is to seek the things that are above where Christ is, where our life is, not the things in this earth, because when he appears, then we will also appear with him in in glory. Now, again, this is vitally important for us as a church to get our heads around. We need to begin to think like this as as a congregation. There are a lot of things that happen throughout the course of our week that drive our minds away from seeking the things above, both individually and corporately. And so we need to be ready, we need to be on guard, we need to be, we need to be vigilant in our understanding that we have been raised with Christ and not to think about the, the, the circumstances, the temporary realities that, that swirl around us. Now, again, for us as a church, this is important because we as God's people have been set apart for one singular purpose, and to make disciples who make disciples. That's what it is. And we're going to begin to see how that begins to flesh itself out as we walk through Colossians chapter 3. So when Christ is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This gives us hope for the future, but also, uh, also motivation in the present. Paul goes on, verse 5. All right, so we have this identity then in verse 1 that is, that is given to us, but then in verse 5, uh, we are told to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then if you bounce down to verse 12, this is almost our outline here, then Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones. So he's telling us to put something off, and he's telling us something to put something on as a result of what we have been or the understanding of what we have become in Christ. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. So immediately Paul, in verse 5, aims at the heart. These are all sins of, of the heart, things that happen internally. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are things that happen internally within us. And he's going to turn his focus outward. But then he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Friends, we live in a society, and many of these, each of these things could, could easily be, uh, be understood as or, or interpreted as, uh, as, as sexual sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then Paul lists things that, that, are, that are inerrantly inside of us, sexual, impurity. We live in a world that is so, so, saturated in, in, in sex. And he's saying, put these things to death. Now, this would have been a reality for the Colossians. They would have seen this. They would have seen this going on in their culture around them. And they would have recognized and realized that they needed to put these things away. And Paul says something very pointed here. He says, on the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On the account of this sin that is happening or, or moving forward or, or taking up or clogging up your heart, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. He's reminding of the Colossians where they came from. He was reminding them of the things that ensnared them. He's reminding them of the place that they wore when they were were submitting themselves to the elemental spirits of the world, as he says in 
chapter 2, verse 20. But now he's reminding them, you have died to these things and therefore put them to death. It's the idea that, that we have been made new and our, ourselves, our bodies, our, our, our life is catching up with what God has made us in Christ Jesus. We have a word for that. It's called sanctification. We are becoming what we already are. We are raised with Christ. We are a new creation. We are set apart. We are holy. And the command here now is to put to death these things so that you may be set apart, so that you may be holy, so that you may be a new creation. Now, that doesn't necessarily always jive in our brains, but the reality is that there's a tension here that exists. You have been raised, therefore do the thing. Being always leads to doing. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. He says, on the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. And then he says in verse 8, now he, he aimed at the heart, and now he turns it away. He turns it outward. For those who, who indulge the flesh in these things that Paul lists in verse 5, those who indulge in the flesh, there now is an outworking of this sin that clogs up our heart. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. So put all of those things in your heart away, and then he, and then he lists the outworkings of them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Friends, these external sins, these things that work themselves out, oftentimes have a root in the, in the verse 5 sins that he lists. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And while they may not exactly line up with one of those things, we see in verse 8 that the anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk that comes out of your mouth is an issue first and foremost of the heart. It is not an issue first and foremost of behavior or behavior modification, but it is an issue first and foremost of the heart. Put those things in your heart away. Put them to death so that the outworking might not uh, come in such a way as, as what looks like anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, sometimes we as people need to enact verse 8 before verse 5 is, is understood. So we together sometimes must look at verse 8 and say, you know what, I'm an angry person. You know what, I'm a, I am a, I'm a wrathful or, or I'm a slanderous person. And these are the questions, again, that we have to ask ourselves. As a church, we see here if we have been raised with Christ and our identity is firmly fixed there, then when we get to verse 8, we see, we see an outworking of something or something that lingers that hasn't yet fully believed or understood that we have been raised with Christ. And so this week, take an inventory. Take an inventory of your life. Consider with me, do I find myself in a position where I'm growing angry with a coworker, or a neighbor, or a friend? Maybe someone blew their, the snow out of their driveway this morning all onto your sidewalk. <laughs> it happened. And, and consider your response in that situation. Consider others in the body of Christ. Consider how you talk about them. Right? Consider how, how we think, in, even in our hearts, underneath the surface, 
about other people, their personal preferences, the way in which they they live, their parenting methods. Think about the way uh, that you think about how people operate in their day-to-day. Do any of them engender these responses? Paul says, put them away. Because you have a firm understanding that you have been raised with Christ and you are seeking the things that are above. Paul says in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Very simply, the old self and the new self are in direct conflict with each other. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. And in verse 10, and have put on the new, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul isn't saying, again, and what we saw last week in John chapter 17, is not that we don't have differences. What Paul is not saying here is that these categorizations in verse 11 are not real and present in our world. What Paul is saying here is that there is something that you identify with that runs much deeper than just uh, an, an outward an outward expression or where do you come from or your social status. Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Each of these individuals, each of these people in this list, or whatever label or identity that you think that maybe describes you more than anything else is totally trumped by verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Again, this is not that we should not celebrate diversity in our world. We should celebrate that God has made us different. And yet, we should recognize that if we have been raised with Christ, we have all been called to seek the things above and to follow what Jesus commands us and to make disciples. So, we've put off the the old self. We've put on the new self. And then what does it look like then to put on the new self? So Paul says, put put to death therefore, and he gives us this list. And they said, the outworking of these is this list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. So what does someone who looks like one who has been raised with Christ, what what should that look like? And this is where this is so helpful for us as a church. Because we can say, well, we've moved past these things. Maybe as individual, like, okay, well, this is not exactly a, 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 real, a, a real challenge for me in my, my daily life. You know, yeah, yeah I get upset. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes my tongue slips and I speak a, a slanderous word against another person. But I, I check it and I repent and I turn. So I'm actively, as an individual, and if that's true of us and we're actively corporately putting to death, that was just earthly in us. The question then becomes, well, then what does it actually look like? And this is where Colossians chapter 3 is so helpful. And much of what Paul writes in the New Testament is so helpful because he gives us the litmus test. He gives us what it actually looks like. 
He shows us how we can, as God's people, or how we should, how we can and should, look. So Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one had complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, we're like looking at five and eight and looking at those lists and say, well, these are not, I'm working through these, I'm repenting, I'm moving past these things, I'm putting them to death. Then we look at 12, and then the conviction hammer drops again. Because when we look here, we see something that we don't exemplify very often. I'm looking at this list, and, and in my own study, my own time in, in, in God's Word this week, I realize just how dramatically impatient I am. Last night, I was shoveling snow. We lived downtown, and I was looking out, and I was so frustrated. I was incredibly frustrated because I watched the... I watched the streets line up with people who were prepared to go to the bar. And, and, I, and I said, but are we going to have to cancel church, God? Like, no, not, not I don't want to do that because, because another week without, without worshiping with the people of God, I want to grow together. I want to be built up together in maturity. And I was like, I was so impatient. And in that moment, I was checked. And I went in and started to to unload on Rebecca, and she was like, hold up. Like, isn't God going to accomplish that which he says that he was going to accomplish? Is not, God not going to do the thing that he says that he's going to do in the lives of his people? And I said, yeah. And she said, what, what, why are you worried about the timing of it? I'm a radically impatient person. And I need to be putting on patience. If I've been raised with Christ, I need to be putting that on. But we together also need to be put, putting that on. Even as we relate to those on our left and our right. And you may find yourself in a position this morning where you're not even quite sure who the people on your left and your right are. We need to be growing together. Again, these things are or make the assumption that there is a corporate identity that's developing amongst the people. Compassionate hearts. It's hard to have compassion on someone you don't know anything about their lives. It's hard to uh, exhibit kindness to someone if you don't know what they're going through, or if you don't have their phone number. It's hard to be humble or to observe humility in your brothers and sisters, or meekness, or even patience when you're unsure of anything about them. I'm convinced that we grow impatient more quickly with people when we have no idea what they're going through. And Paul says, bearing with one another. And, again, here's an if, a conditional statement. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Paul gives more words here to forgiveness than anything else. He gives us a greater understanding of what it looks like to be raised with Christ in his, under, in, in, in his, in, 
in his explaining of forgiveness. If one has a complaint against another. Oftentimes, even in the context of the local church, we have complaints against one another that don't cross the line into slander or gossip because we take them directly to the right person. However, however, if you do have a complaint against another, forgiving, if that person has sinned against you, forgiving each other is something that is not simply a soft suggestion, but is commanded. And Paul even goes as far to give us the basis for that forgiveness. Because the Lord has forgiven you. So you must, or you also must forgive. If you have a complaint against another person in the body of Christ, the, the proper, the proper uh, course of action is to take it to that person and to extend forgiveness freely. And this is a picture of the gospel. And even, even our own ability to do this flows out of our raised life, new life in Christ. There is no part of these 17 verses that doesn't find their primary root in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. If then you have been raised with Christ, put on compassionate hearts. If then you have been raised with Christ, be kind. If then you have been raised with Christ, be humble. If then you have been raised with Christ, be meek, be patient, bear with one another. It all finds its root right there. If then you have been raised with Christ. And then in verse 14 he says, And above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so he gives us the, the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim here. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. You remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about love and how love that doesn't cost you anything isn't love at all. It's just some form of niceness. Comfortable, convenient niceness. And so Paul is saying, if you have been raised with Christ, Put on love. Love costs you something. Your corporate identity is bound up in your ability to love each other. But this love, even though it costs you something immense, your time, your energy, your effort, your financial resources, even if it does this thing and costs you a lot, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so when we look here at this text, and we see, put off these things, put on these things. These seem like a big list of stuff for us to do. If we're driven back to the understanding that love that costs us something binds everything together in perfect harmony. And again, Jesus prays in John 17. He prays for our oneness. Rooted in the oneness of God. Jesus prays that we would be one even as he and the Father are, are one. What does that look like? It looks like loving each other. Self-sacrificially loving one another. I've often just thought, what would it look like for us as a church, as the body of Christ, to love self-sacrificially? 
in such a way that we would come together and say, there is no, no thing that costs me, there is no thing that is off limits for me as a follower of Jesus when it comes to loving a brother or sister in Christ. It would look like being bound together in perfect harmony. It would look like an unprecedented understanding of what it means to be on mission together. What it means to be disciples who make disciples. One of the biggest objections just to getting together with another human being to read the Bible is time. But in those moments, what we're saying is love doesn't have the ability to bind us together because that is too great a cost. That time or that energy, that effort is too great a cost. I've got too many things going on. This last week, we, were, we have men. We have what we call war council once a month. We get together at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday evening, the first Wednesday of each month, and we were talking about the idea, the virtue, the Christian virtue of courage. And we were thinking through exactly what it looks like to be courageous, to speak, uh, speak the truth about who God is in a difficult circumstance regardless of what the outcome might be. Now, again, one of the things that we usually fall into as God's people is an unwillingness to speak the truth about who God is because of what the, the outcome might be. We oftentimes are, are much more afraid of man than we are of, of God. But Paul says, put on love here, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we are to courageously approach other people with the truth of the gospel, if we are courageously to love them in a way that, that is self-sacrificial, that says my image or, or my, my own, uh, your, your own understanding of me when I bring the truth of the gospel is not too high a cost. What an incredible testimony that would be for the church to take the truth of the gospel courageously to the world, understanding fully that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. This unity that God has within himself, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing for eternity past into eternity future. This oneness, a love for himself, his own glory that we are now woven into. That's what this looks like. We now have the ability to love as those who have been loved by God. So, we see then, if we have been raised with Christ, if we have an understanding of who God is because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, giving us newness of life, we seek the things that are above by putting to death what is earthly in us and putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving and loving. Verse 15 turns a corner. Verse 15 takes all of this, and again, this can be applied to the individual or corporately, but now Paul starts talking about worship. What does it look like for us to worship God and the person of Jesus Christ? You may or may not have a paragraph break here, that's okay. You may not have a section break here, that's okay. But look at verse 15. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Look at the last word there in verse 15, and be thankful. And then look at the last phrase at the end of verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the last phrase in verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, when you see something repeated over and over again in Scripture, you should probably take note. Gratitude is something that Paul is pressing home as an imperative for the people of God when they come together to worship God. And so he says, all of this is for the church, but he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And then he says, be grateful, be thankful. The peace of Christ the understanding that we now have been made right with God. We have peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That is the peace that needs to rule in our hearts. That is the peace that we are called to, allowed to rule in our hearts together as the, the people of God. A focus on, a centrality on, a pivot on the gospel itself. Everything that we do rests upon the fulcrum of the truth of the, the gospel because it allows us to understand that we have been made right with God. As those who were set against God because of our sin, his wrath turned against us now have been made right with God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so what do we do with that? We let it rule in our hearts. We let the truth of the gospel rule in our hearts as God's people because we are called in one body. And then we are to be thankful. We are to be grateful. We are to say, thank you, Jesus, for the fact that I am right with God and I am no longer under the wrath of God. So together, what does that look like? What does it look like for us as God's people to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? It's to be all about the gospel. It's to be all about the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the, that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the perfect life that we could not and died the death that we deserve so that we could be made right with God. For the forgiveness, he died so that we could have forgiveness of sins, so that his righteousness could come to us and we could stand before a holy God, a God totally other, and be justified, be set apart. This is peace of Christ that we are to allow to rule in our hearts. And we are to be grateful. And then, this is important. This is where we'll wrap up. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like, this is for us together. Not for us as individuals. This is us together. And we need to apply it individually, but we also need to see the very direct and real corporate application of this truth. Let the, let the, Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What, what, is that, what does that mean, Paul? What does that look like? It means loving the Word of God together as a people. Speaking the truths of Scripture to one another. It means what he says very next, the next thing here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Showing people, pointing other people to the peace that they have with God through Christ Jesus because of the truth of the gospel. Letting the word dwell richly in us. Now, in order for the word to dwell richly in us, we actually have to know what it says. 
And this is again an epidemic in our churches. Oftentimes we come to a place where we look and we're like, well, we're people of the book. We know the Bible. Does anyone say that here? I don't think so. I think they say that in the South. We're people of the Bible. And we come and we say, this is our, this is our standard for living. This is what communicates to us first and foremost about who God is. But if we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, then we are to actually know what the Bible says about everything. That's a daunting task. But it's one that we are called to. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, not partially, but richly. And then we, as saints, together in the context of the local church, are called to teach or to instruct one another, admonish one another. That means to build them up, to point out sin, to show them how it applies. Admonish one another in all wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so we ask God for wisdom. And then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We don't sing on Sunday morning because it's a cultural thing. We sing on Sunday morning because it's commanded here. We're addressing one another in our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then, what does it come to? It comes to gratitude and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then Paul says, as if all of this wasn't enough, he writes verse 17. As if all of this wasn't clear enough to us, if you have been raised, put off these things, put on these things. This is what it looks like to be those who have been raised with Christ, to be new creations. If all of that isn't enough and it's not comprehensive enough, and he says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through, through him. This is a call for us to evaluate. This is where we'll end. This is a call for us to evaluate everything we do. Both together as a body. Is the thing that we choose to do as the body of Christ a a reflection of who God is? Is it centered on the truth of the gospel? Does it make much of Jesus? Or is it attempting to make much of us? Everything you do, whatever you do in word or deed, everything that we speak, every word that comes out of our mouth, and every action that we take. When you're alone at 11 p.m., when you're together with the body of Christ at 11 a.m., daylight savings, um, evaluate it in relation to this verse. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. This is the part we miss. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Why do we give thanks? Because apart from God, apart from His work on our behalf, Jesus Christ's work on our behalf, apart from Him, we have the ability to do none of this. And so we gather together and we look together at God's Word and we see very clearly that whatever we do together as a church, whatever we speak and whatever we choose to rally around, whatever we choose to work out in our daily lives, we must do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a man who I I did some work for. I think I've told this story before, but there's a man who I did some work for in high school, some landscaping work, and he oftentimes would look at the work that I had done and say, would you put your signature on that? 
And that was meant to be like, your work wasn't good enough. Figure it out. Paul tells us here, whatever we say and whatever we do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we put the name of Jesus on anything that we do throughout the course of the week, any moment? Would we say, this is God honoring us together as the body of Christ, is the thing that I'm about to participate in, is this God honoring the tone in which I speak to my wife or the words that I speak to that coworker or the frustrations that well up inside of me as a result of another six inches of snow? Would we be willing to say that we would do how we respond to that thing, what we do, what we say, would we be willing to do it or say it or that response is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? A response that is commensurate with putting His name on everything that we do. A response looks like giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So when I was sharing earlier that I was impatient with the fact that we might not be able to get together this morning and worship because I want to grow together in maturity and be built up as the body of Christ, that, my response in that moment, was not at all God-honoring because I was not giving thanks to God for what He's done so far in our lives, in our corporate life. And I was saying, it is my ingenuity and my creative power and my ability to stand up in front of people and talk at them that is going to, to bind us together. But the reality is that there is nothing that can bind us together outside of what Paul writes at the very beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ. There is nothing that binds us together more thoroughly than finding our identity in Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel that comes to us here in this text. The truth of the gospel that compels us to do because we are, because we've been made something. And so, together, final question, just to ask you this morning, are we seeking the things that are above at the, that, with Christ at the right hand of God the Father? Are we able to put Jesus' name on everything that we do throughout the course of the week? The answer, first and foremost, is found in the gospel. We, as God's people, applying that truth to our daily lives, the truth that we were alienated and hostile in mind, set apart from God because of our sin, but now we have been reconciled to him because of the shed blood of Jesus. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God, but we trust Jesus and we turn from our sin and we, choose, we seek to love him and, to, uh, and to, to make him the center of all that we do as the body of Christ. So this morning, let us let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Let us let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Let us be grateful. And whatever we do in word or deed, Let's do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray.